Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that, uh, that you would just open up our hearts right now to receive it. We pray that we would be ready and willing for whatever you want to say to us tonight, that we would have hearts that understand and uh, are obedient to your, your word. So please have your way with us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. On Wednesday nights, we find ourselves going through the Bible, roughly one book a week, which brings us tonight to the book of Ezra. And the next three weeks, we're going to be in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And at that point, we will have completed the whole historical narrative of the nation of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. And so every book in the Old Testament from that point on is going to be tucked in somewhere in what we've already covered. And so as we get to the, you know, the minor prophets, we'll be able to say, okay, you know, they're during the time of this king, or uh, we will cover a couple of them tonight, or during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so what we're coming up to is, is sort of the historical arc of Israel in the Old Testament coming to a, to a close. And Ezra, if you remember from last week and from where we've been at on Sunday mornings in Jeremiah, the nation of Israel came into the promised land. They had Saul and then David and Solomon as their kings. And then the nation divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom wound up being conquered by the nation of Assyria. And then about 100, 150 years later, the southern kingdom, also known as Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians. But um, through the prophet Jeremiah, God had said, you guys are going to be captured by the Babylonians, but in 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And 70 years later, exactly true to his word, the Lord uh, opened up that door for the nation of Judah to return. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Ezra. Ezra opens up chapter 1, uh, verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Ezra opens up by saying, this book is going to be the story of what happens when God starts fulfilling his word. And that's, that's where we find ourselves. And Ezra, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Ezra wrote the book. And so if you write your own book, you have the privilege of naming it whatever you jolly well want. Um, he probably actually didn't give it this title. It was given this title later on in history. But the book of Ezra, we're going to see three primary characters. And Ezra's only one of them. We're going to see a guy by the name of Zerubbabel which is just a great thing to name your kids, especially if you're going to send them to public school. Nobody will ever give them a hard time about that. Uh, a guy named Joshua, and then the character Ezra. And really, Zerubbabel and Joshua actually take up the majority of, they take up about half of the book's length, but they're going to take up the vast majority of the time that we'll cover in the book. The character Ezra is going to cover about one year chronologically in the book of Ezra. But um, we're going to look at several decades overall is, is what this book is covering. So it opens up uh, with the Lord saying, hey, 
uh, with the Lord stirring up the spirit of Cyrus to, to really let the people come back. And what Cyrus is doing here is he's saying, okay, you know what? I think God's put me in place for a reason, and I'm going to respond to that. And you could kind of say, well, why, you know, why, when, why Cyrus, all that. But here's the, here's the, the short answer. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. The Lord had made a promise to the nation of Judah that he was going to bring them back. But more specifically, uh, in the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 44, and we'll, uh, verse 28, you don't have to flip there. We'll be flipping a little bit all over the place tonight. But... Uh, Starting in chapter 44, verse 28, the Lord speaking says, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor though you have not known me. This is written about 150 years before Cyrus comes onto the scene. And the Lord says, you know, I'm gonna appoint Cyrus. And I want you to write it down by name, Isaiah. And so Isaiah writes this prophecy down 150 years beforehand. And so the Lord is fulfilling his promise through Jeremiah. The Lord's fulfilling his promise through Isaiah. Um, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who, wrote, who writes that Daniel actually took Cyrus to this portion of Scripture and said, hey, God wrote about you. And that's when Cyrus decided to let the people go. Um, so... So the Lord is stirring up the heart of Cyrus. The Lord is stirring something. He's starting a move of God's people. And Cyrus says, okay, you know what? Let's do this. In fulfillment of this prophecy, the Lord said, I'm gonna tell him to you know, rebuild the temple and lay its foundations. So go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and lay its foundations. If you wanna go, you are free to return to your homeland. If you don't wanna go, pay for somebody else to go. And he opens up this invitation and it's a great thing. And so that takes us through chapter two where we get a list of all the people who return. Um, it's pretty much just a straight-up census of, you know, this family and this clan brought this many people. But as we're looking at it, okay, we're trying to remember that, you know, God is doing something. And these people are all coming back. You know, Ezra's really the story of people coming back to the land. And, but what are they coming back to? When they, most of them have probably never seen this land. They, you know, the, they've been in captivity for 70 years. So if you're healthy enough to be able to make the journey, you're probably less than 70 years old, which means you've never actually seen this land. The last they heard of it, uh, it had been completely destroyed, broken down, and burned with fire. And so what are they going back to? They're not going back to comfort. They're not going back to pleasure. They're not going back to riches. They're going back to the promise of God. They're going back to God said, this land belongs to our fathers. And God said he would bring us back to this land. And we're going to respond in obedience to what God said. That's really what we're looking at through the book of Ezra. That's really what we'll be looking at uh, through the book of Nehemiah next week as well, is when people respond to the word of God and take it 
as if it's worth obeying. So, and just incidentally, side thought here. Uh, I know a lot of times, a lot of Wednesday nights have been going like, you know, big point from the book, big point from the book, big point from the book. Ezra's short enough, we're going to sort of just go chapter by chapter through the whole thing. It's only 10 chapters. We went through the first two chapters already, so we're on a roll. Chapter 3 says, Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So this guy, Joshua, some of your translations might say Joshua, same name, it's just a variant on the spelling. Um, Joshua and Zerubbabel, they make it back to Jerusalem with all the rest of the people. There's about 50,000 people that come back. And they make it back and they say, okay, we're going to do this. What should we do first? Let's build an altar. And you think about that. Why, why, you know, what is your first step? You get back to a place you've never been uh, with, it's really just a giant pile of rubble. What's the first thing we do? Well, for these guys, the first thing we do is we're going to build an altar to God. Why? Because we need to be able to offer sacrifices to God. We need to be able to... And to have that relationship with God, we need to recognize our need for cleansing. We need to recognize our need for fellowship with God. We have got to establish a connection with God before anything else happens. And that's, you know, so much of this is just a, a total picture for our lives, right? If we want to, if we're coming into a season of hardship that's also a season of opportunity, if we're coming into a place that maybe feels like, you know, there's just a lot of rubble, but this is what I think the Lord called me to, then the first thing we've got to do is establish the relationship with the Lord that we have. We don't get everything else done and then go for that. We establish our relationship with God first and foremost and then say, okay, what happens now? What happens next? So they, they, they build the altar. And then in verse eight, it says, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of their brothers, the priest, um, it goes on and it says, they began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work. And they start rebuilding the temple. They lay the foundation of the temple. They are, they are doing the work of God. They're fulfilling the commands of Cyrus and they're fulfilling the word of God. And these guys, Joshua and Zerubbabel, are gonna take up most of the book and they start off, man, they, they hit the ground running, right? They get back to Jerusalem. They've never been there before, but they are ready to do the word of God, to, to obey and, to, and to, they're ready to establish the relationship with him. They're ready to rebuild the temple. They are doing what God has called them to do. They are fulfilling their purpose and their mission in life. And then chapter four, it opens up and it says, now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, if you remember, Judah and Benjamin were the two tribes that were collectively the southern kingdom. They were sometimes just called the nation of Judah. So the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel, and the heads of the father's households, and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. And so these guys, um, just contextually, they're not Jewish people. They, by the time of the New Testament, they're what would be known as the Samaritans, but they have really a very mixed religion thing. Uh, they're definitely not serving the God of the Bible, but they're not totally serving the pagan gods. They've got a little bit of this you know, salad bar religion where if it works for you, that's great. I don't want to step on your toes and impose my views on your truth and all that stuff. And they say, but it specifies at the beginning, they're the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. And they say, hey, we want to come help you guys. 
We just want to come alongside, encourage you, help you find your truth. And Zerubbabel and Joshua, verse 3, and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. They say, you know what? Money's not everything. Labor's not everything. Doing this the right way is much more significant. The how is more important than the what. And so thank you, but no thank you. Uh, we don't want your help. And then, verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So their response to getting a no answer is to go out and hire professional discouragement to try and slow down the work, which would imply that their attempts at helping build the temple probably weren't all that sincere in the first place. But we see here, and we'll see it a lot more next week as well, the enemies of God are always, soon, as soon as the work of God starts, with any kind of passion, with any kind of vigor, the enemies of God are always right there, ready to quote-unquote help, and then very quickly ready to just flat-out discourage you. And so what happens with these guys, once they get turned down, um, basically in the, in the chronology of the kings of Persia, this, is, this may sound pointless, but it matters, um, You've got Cyrus, and you've got another king after him, uh, sometimes called Artaxerxes, and then you've got Darius after him. And so Cyrus gives the command. Shortly after, a little while after that, Cyrus dies, and this guy Artaxerxes is in place. And these enemies of the Israelites in chapter 4, they write to this king, and they say, hey, you know what? These people are building the temple. If you'll look at the historical record, they're actually famous for being a pain in the neck to any kingdom who was over them. So really, it would be in your best interest to stop them from having any kind of religious identity here. And the king writes back and says, you know what? We looked in the record. You're right. They always disobey. They're always troublemakers. So you make sure that they stop building the house of God. And it says that they come and with a force of arms, they, they force them to stop. They say, you know what, sorry guys, the, the king said you must not build the house of God. So to an extent, the people's hands are tied, and so they stop building the house of God, but they stop for 20 years. They stop building the house of God for 20 years, for two decades, until this king dies and another king comes along. And it says, chapter 5, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So if you want to, I told you you don't have to flip all anywhere tonight, but I lied, um, which isn't super pastoral e, but whatever. Um, so if you would, flip over to the book of Haggai or Haggai, however you want to pronounce it, or Haggai, or however else. We're gonna, so these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they each have a book in the Bible. They're two of the minor prophets, which just means they wrote shorter letters. Um, but they come to the people during this time. After 20 years of the people, you know, not building the temple and doing other projects along the way, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's the two guys we've been reading about. Saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. 
So the Lord says, hey, you know what? You guys are all talk, walking around saying, you know what? It's just, it's just not time. I'm just not feeling the energy. I'm not getting the right vibes. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, verse four, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. God says, you guys are all walking around saying, it's not time to, do the house, to build the house of the Lord. But I happen to notice that you're all living in pretty exquisite houses, right? We can't, no, we can't afford to build the house of God. Of course, we have granite, you know, countertops and, and stainless steel appliances and an extra boat or whatever. But no, 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 it's not time. It's not time to build the house of God. And Haggai comes to people and he says, excuse me, it is time to build the house of God. You've waited for 20 years. It is time to stop playing games. It is time to get back to the work that God calls you to do. And Haggai is probably one of my favorite books in in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite of the prophets because it's one of the only instances in the Old Testament where a prophet comes to the people, tells them what to do, and the people do it. It, It's it's like the most encouraging book that any of the prophets ever got to write because Haggai comes and says, you guys need to build the house of God. And the people say, you think so? Okay, we'll build the house of God. And Zechariah comes in this same time. If you flip the page in your Bible, you'll be in the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah comes with Basically the same message, plus a lot of other stuff that we won't go into, but in chapter four of Zechariah, um, the Lord's talking to Zechariah, and he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, chapter four, verse six, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So put those together. Haggai comes to the people and says, you know what, it is time to quit playing games. It is time to build the house of God, to do the work that God has called you to do. And Zechariah comes at the exact same time and says, guys, you're called to do this work, but how are you called to do it? You're not called to do it by your might. You're not called to do it by your power. You're called to do it by the Spirit of God. You're called to fulfill and obey the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And we're looking at the Old Testament this year. We're going through trying to say, how does this apply to our lives? How do we look at the book of Ezra and and glean something that we can learn? Well, if we want to live out the Word of God, if we want to obey the word of God, the, the, you know, the task and the purpose for which God has called us and for which God has created each and every one of us, it will not be done by might or by power. It will be done only by the spirit of God. And that is really the great lesson here. And so what happens? The spirit of God is stirring up the hearts of his people. Okay, in, in Ezra chapter five, the spirit of God is stirring up their hearts. And what happens? They respond to the spirit of God. And so... When the prophets came, you know, chapter five, verse one and two, then Zerubbabel and Joshua, they start building. They say, you know what, you're right. This is, this is ridiculous. We should not be living in paneled houses. We are going to do this by the power of the Spirit of God. And guess what happens? Once again, as soon as they start to fulfill the word of God and the call of God, what happens? Their adversaries come. Their enemies come back against them in chapter five. And and they say, you know, you guys can't do this. We've got, excuse me, we've got a, a rule from the king. And they say, you know what? We serve a king higher than your king. We serve the Lord. And our God told us to build this temple. And if you want to write your king and do something about it, that's your right. You do it. But we're going to keep building. And so the enemies of the Lord write this letter. 
back to the king and they say, hey, who's, and we've now got a new king. We've got the King Darius. They say, hey, Darius, sir, um, these people are building the temple. They said that King Cyrus told them to do that. We think that's hooey, but um, we're just letting you know that we think you ought to do something about it. And Darius writes them back in chapter six. And it's just a great picture of the Lord's sense of humor. Darius writes him back and he says, thank you for your letter. I went and looked it up. And as a matter of fact, they're right. The king did tell them to go back and he did tell them to build that temple. And so here's what I think we ought to do. All of your taxes, instead of paying them to me, just feed them directly to the Israelites. And that'll help fund the expenses. And and do you guys have any questions? And if, and, you know, and if you don't, well, we'll just make sure you execute it, okay? And if there's any, any further questions, just let me know. And so you just see the Lord's love of protecting his people. The Lord's love of saying, you know what? I'm just gonna do something that's just gonna blow their minds with who I am. And it does not mean that every time we step out in obedience, things will work out exactly like we hope. Uh, truthfully, yeah, I heard a pastor say one time, Sometimes you can gauge the opportunity, the size, the scope of opportunity that the Lord is giving you by how many people can like shoot at you at one time, right? Like you say, oh, I've got a huge open door from the Lord. A lot of people can shoot at you through an open door. If it's a really small opportunity from the Lord, there might not be that much challenge. A huge opportunity usually comes with huge challenge. So these guys respond and they get their adversaries. They get all the problems, but the Lord is still faithful because they're not building it by might. And they're not building it by power. They're building it by the Spirit of God. And in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the temple was completed on the third day of the month in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The Lord promised to do it by his spirit and the project was completed now if you read it's it's a multi-year project they start the rebuilding in the first year of darius's reign they don't get it done till the sixth year of darius's reign it doesn't happen overnight there's still problems and there's still challenges and then that still happens but the lord is doing a work and the lord is faithful to complete the work that he starts Amen. and then chapter seven we finally get to meet ezra it says that after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah. Ezra's a very intellectual guy, so he gives us a lot of names. The son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahidab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah. And you get the idea. Ezra gets sent to Jerusalem, basically to help uh, be a spiritual mentor to the people. And what we're going to see, the narrative shifts a little bit um, we're just, you can sort of, it goes a little bit, it goes first person after this. And so that's where we can largely infer that Ezra wrote it. But Ezra's going to use a phrase over and over again through, through the rest of the book. And he's going to reference, the hand of God was upon him, or the hand of God was upon me. And that is super key, I think, for us to understand in our lives. Ezra's going to be part of something that God is doing, part of a really significant thing that God is doing. And in Nehemiah, we see even more of it. It's a massive work of the Lord. A, a really, a, a huge sense of revival breaks out among the people. But Ezra never says, you know what, I went with all my intellect and my wisdom and I just whipped the people in shape and got them to serve the Lord. It's not because Ezra was unintelligent. 
It says that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Ezra was well-versed. Ezra, uh, most people would say, wrote the books of First and Second Chronicles. First Chronicles is basically a genealogy of the entire nation of Israel. Ezra was the guy who was smart enough to map it all out and track it all down without any kind of, you know, DNA testing or whatever. Ezra could crunch it all and figure it out. Ezra's a, Ezra's a bright guy. But Ezra is not successful because of any capability on his part. He's successful and he recognizes his success is because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And it comes up over and over again. Chapter 7 uh, verse 6, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Verse 9, because the good hand of his God was upon him. Verse um, 28, then I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Chapter 9, verse 18, according to the good hand of our God upon us. Chapter nine, chapter 8, sorry, verse 22, the hand of our God is favorably disposed toward, toward all who seek him. Chapter 8, verse 31, and the hand of our God was over us. Ezra is a part of something God is doing, and he is humble enough to recognize it. And that's just another thing. You know, we all have skills and giftings. None of those are worth a thing if we elevate them and assume them to be our source of strength. None of those have any value if we assume that God is using us because of them. If we're going to be used by God, it's going to be because the good hand of our God is upon us. It's going to be because God has chosen us. And he might use those gifts. He might have raised us up and given us those gifts and opportunities specifically for the purpose that he's created us for. But that does not mean that we can look at them and say, well, I must be qualified for this position because I can do this. No, we look at it and say, if the hand of God is leading me here, then I am willing to go. And so that's what we see with Ezra. Ezra comes back really to teach the people. And the book, as it, well, and then chapter eight, chapter seven, basically Ezra gets the commission to go. Chapter eight, Ezra goes. And then chapter nine and 10 is sort of him taking care of business when he gets there. Primarily, um, the people who had been there at this point for several decades had started to marry their pagan neighbors, which was really starting over the whole process of what had gotten them in trouble in the first place. I mean, all of the problems of Israel, through the book of Judges, through First and Second Samuel, all the problems in Solomon's life, almost all the problems in every one of the kings of Israel's lives can be traced back to marrying ungodly women. And Ezra gets here, and these guys are all doing it all over again. And he says, have you lost your mind? Do you not realize that we just got back from 70 years of captivity because of this? Like, do you really want to repeat this whole process all over again? And so... More, so basically what happens is the people come together and say, what do we need to do? And they say, in this situation, we need to divorce ourselves from our wives. And that's a specific solution. That's not saying if you have a wife who you think is unholy, you should just, sorry, babe, it's right in the Bible. Um, it's a specific instance at a specific time when the Lord is doing a specific thing. But it does underscore the fact that the Lord takes very seriously the union of a man and a woman because it's a picture of the relationship that we have with God. The joining of a husband and wife is a sacred thing and the Lord takes it very seriously. And so he did not want the people then joining together with pagan women. He didn't want it to happen. And, and you know, we understand the Lord hates divorce. It's in the scriptures. The Lord hates divorce. He provides divorce as a means of protecting people because sometimes that's a tragic reality. But the Lord hates divorce 
From the beginning, it says God created them to be male and female, and the two should be joined as one flesh and not separated. But there are some things that are greater. And a relationship with God always takes priority over a relationship with any human being. And in this situation here in the book of Ezra, that's what the point it came to. They could either have really their spouse or the Lord. And these people made the right choice. They said, we cannot deny the Lord to keep our spouse. And so that's not a, you know, anyways, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying. And so that's the book of Ezra in a, in a, in a whole. All right, but where are we seeing Jesus Christ in this? What are we, as we're looking, we're trying to see, well, you know, what is, how does this point to the New Testament? How does this point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, he came to earth, he lived a perfect life, he died for my sins, he rose again, and now he's giving me new life? Well, there isn't a direct prophecy in Ezra that, that points to that. But what we do see is we see people fulfilling the word of the Lord, and we see people stepping in to the second chances that the Lord offers. Um, if you want to flip one last place for the night, unless I think of somewhere else to flip, the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, in verse 1. Zechariah has a vision from God. And he says, I saw, oh, sorry, then he says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest, Remember, Joshua and Zerubbabel? Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Zechariah has a vision of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, and Satan is standing there ready to accuse Joshua and ready to point out to Jesus all the reasons why Joshua should be disqualified from ministry. And the Lord said to Satan, verse two, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. I wasn't pointing at anybody specifically over there. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. So Satan is getting ready to accuse Joshua before the Lord. Book of Revelation, I think it is, calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. That's his specialty. He goes to the Lord and says, this person ought to be disqualified because they did this. And truthfully, he doesn't have to make stuff up right? There's plenty of things that all of us have done that have disqualified us. Joshua is standing here and it says he's in filthy garments. Satan isn't, Satan isn't making stuff up. Joshua's standing there before the Lord disqualified and Satan's getting ready to accuse him and the Lord says, zip it. The Lord does not give Satan an opportunity to speak. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And then he said, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Zechariah has this vision of Joshua standing in his sin before the Lord and Satan ready to accuse him and the Lord saying, you don't need to accuse him because I'm going to cleanse him. And what did Joshua do? Well, I mean, Joshua was a sinner just like us. So there's any number of things that he did. But in the book of Ezra, what did he do? He paused. For 20 years, he paused. He had a call from God on his life and he said, you know what, there's just too much opposition. There's too much government oppression, there's too much whatever, I just need to take a break. I'm gonna go build my house and I'll get back to it when the Lord wants me to, when, when it's cozy. Joshua pauses. He wastes, truthfully, he wastes 20 years of his life. 
And the Lord says, you know what? Take all that off. I'm cleansing you of something new. You are standing before me in clean garments. And it's the same idea of what Jesus did to Peter. If you can think of when Peter denied Jesus at the night of his crucifixion. And then Jesus comes to Peter after he rises from the dead. He says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, I'm, I told you at the beginning you were gonna be a fisher of men. I didn't change my mind. Just because you blew it doesn't change the fact that I still have a plan for you. And for each one of us, the story of Joshua and Zerubbabel is the story of our lives. We all have wasted, wasted years in the past. And the Lord still tells us, hey, you know what? I'm clothing you in clean garments. And I am calling you to the work that I've prepared you for. And it's not going to be by might. And it's not going to be by power. It's going to be by the Spirit. So Ezra really comprehensively summarizes the gospel, which is that your past is irrelevant. The call of God for your life still applies. And it does not have to be done by your strength. And it doesn't, isn't based off of your righteousness or your ability to cleanse yourself because the Lord is taking all of that off and putting all the righteousness of Jesus Christ on you. So you stand there and Satan prepares to accuse you and the Lord says, I'm sorry, he's wearing clean clothing. You have nothing, there you have no filth to accuse him of. There's nothing, he has no spot. I see him as perfect. And that's what, that's what Ezra gives us. Ezra is the story of people who are part of a work of God with all their failures, all their triumphs, and everything in between. Nehemiah next week is gonna be very much uh, similar concepts, but just in a totally different story. And Nehemiah's probably... Uh, I've got a lot of favorite books of the Bible, truthfully. But Nehemiah's in my top 66 for sure. Um, <laughs> Nehemiah is a great book of the Bible. It's just an exceptional story about a man who refuses to allow compromise into his life. So uh, if you're bored, read it ahead of time. It's not that long of a book. And it's a, it's a powerful, I think it's a powerful word from the Lord for every one of us. But Lord, we thank you for the book of Ezra. We thank you that... You are so faithful, God. Your, your grace is so overwhelming uh, to Joshua and to Zerubbabel and to each one of us in this room. We thank you that no matter what we've done, that your grace can still remove all of our sins, not just cover them up, but actually take them away and that we can be completely holy and pure in your eyes. We thank you for that and we praise you for that. We pray that that would impact how we live our lives. That wouldn't just be something we acknowledge and then stick in our pocket. That would be a truth that drives us, a truth that motivates change in our hearts, that causes us to want to know you more and draw closer to the, the God who has the, the power and the love to actually accomplish that. I pray that you would just work in our hearts this week, God. Draw us closer to your word. Give us opportunities to step into the work that you're calling us to. Help us to walk in obedience, not by might and not by power, but by your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our, our cleanser, that we pray. Amen.